Okay, it is right at five o'clock. Why don't we go ahead and get this kicked off? Um, thank you everyone for joining. I'm, it seems like people are gonna start um, coming in as, as we get this launched. So I'm really excited to get this kicked off. It's, it's the first of our series of Twitter Space events that we're gonna be hosting. Uh, for those of you that are new to the Unity Project, let me tell you a little bit about who we are. So the Unity Project was formed in 2021 to unite grassroots organizations and efforts with medical experts to fight against tyrannical COVID mandates. With over 200 strategic partners, we've become a conduit of communication and collaborations for group, excuse me, groups working to stop the assault on medical freedom and parental rights. You can find out more about the work that we're doing at the Unity Project at theunityproject.org. And of course, we're a 501c3, so we always appreciate any support that, that uh, anyone's willing to give. Let me introduce my co-host for this evening, a man who probably needs no introduction, uh, but it's certainly worth repeating. Dr. Robert Malone is an internationally recognized scientist in virology, immunology, a physician, an author. He's a bioethicist, and he's also the original inventor of the mRNA vaccine and DNA vaccinology, as well as multiple non-viral DNA and RNA slash mRNA uh, platform delivery technologies. These inventions are documented in 15 issued patents. He's scientifically trained at UC Davis, UC San Diego, and the Salk Institute Molecular Biology and Bio Virology Laboratories. Dr. Malone received his medical training at Northwestern University, Harvard University School of Medicine, and in pathology at UC Davis. Uh, he's also, as I said before, he's an author, and his most recent book is one that I think everyone should get their hands on. It's The Lies That My Government Told Me. Um, and our guest this evening, I'm also extremely excited to, to announce, and again, probably someone that needs no introduction, uh, but Edward Dowd. Ed is currently a founding partner with Finance Technologies, a global macro alternative investment firm. He's worked on Wall Street for most of his career, spanning both credit markets and equity markets. Um, he's been responsible for managing uh, BlackRock portfolio of over $14 billion in growth equity. Um, after BlackRock, he, he founded Ocean Square Asset, and he also just wrote a book called Cause Unknown, the Epidemic of Sudden Death in 2021 and 2022. So gentlemen, so much for being here with me. Robert, thank you so much for being my co-host on this. Um, let's kick this off. You know, one of the things that I found interesting, and I know uh, both you, both of you have just been speaking about this on Bannon, um, but the Biden administration just announced that they are going to extend the COVID-19 state of emergency for another 90 days. And I find this to be incredible. Um, for me, it seems like this is just a state of living now. You can't really term it a state of emergency. Um, but what's amazing is, you know, at the last look at what's happening with the CDC, the current mortality is under 300 per day. Um, if I did the math correctly, and, and, and Robert and Ed, you guys can correct me on this, that's uh, 0.000001% mortality rate. So that means that fentanyl deaths actually surpass COVID-19 deaths in the United States right now, yet we're still living under an emergency. Let's talk about why they're, the government is to do that. And then I wanted into this, um, something that's become really, really popular to talk about right now, given, given the newest or the latest incident in the NFL, which is died suddenly. So um, let me kick it over to you, Robert, and let's talk about why the government is continuing to extend this uh, COVID-19 state of emergency. Well, basically they've got themselves, and, and first off, Laura, can you confirm you've got the audio? I can, yes. You okay. sound loud and clear. Super. So the government is in a box right now. They've built a whole lot of policy around the extra-constitutional provisions that are provided by what's essentially war powers, granted consequent to the state of emergency. And uh, they believe that they need at least 60 days to unwind all of these things, which include provisions that relate to student loans it relates to Medicare policies. Of course, the emergency use authorization uh, is all in place and dependent on this declaration of emergency. If that goes away, all of that uh, drops. The ability to implement mandates uh, drops. The legal protections drop. There's multiple things that will transform the world as we've come to accept it over the last three years. If if this is terminated, and just to put a cap on it, 
You may recall that Bobby Kennedy in the steps of the Lincoln Memorial for the Stop the Mandates rally in D.C. explicitly said that they keep the hours until such time as we force them to rescind them. They're too convenient. Bureaucrats don't give up power. That's exactly what we've seen. Now, what's in play is that the Senate actually voted to rescind this uh, medical emergency that's not a medical emergency. And the House refused to take it up. And we're now suddenly in a position where the House may take it up during this lame duck session. And there's also a package for $22.4 billion, that's the Biden administration's request, to carry forward with the policies uh, that are being enabled by this. And uh, if the Republicans don't approve it in the House and it doesn't pass in this lame duck session, they've got a big problem. They've got an unfunded program uh, that uh, they believe they're going to take at least two months to wind down. So they're, you know, they're now out on the edge in an environment in which there's no medical justification for uh, continuing a state of emergency. There is no medical emergency. There hasn't been one for a very long time. Our hospitals right. aren't overwhelmed. Uh, the death rate has flatlined for a long period. And remember, that's a artificially elevated death rate. That's anybody that dies that has a PCR signal of this virus is considered to have died from the virus, which is obviously false. So we're in a situation where the governments box themselves into a corner. And then we have this Rasmussen poll that's come out recently that, that indicates that the bulk of the population believes that the vaccines are causing sudden death, which is aligned with the actual data. And then we have this uh, PR fiasco of what happened in the NFL the other day. Mm -hmm. But before we go into that, I think it's important that we talk about the fact that these vaccines are still under an emergency use authorization. So if the, the state of emergency went away, then wouldn't they have to pull these vaccines off the market immediately? Or alternatively, the manufacturers, which do have a license... Uh, to produce and distribute these would have to revert to actually providing the licensed product as opposed to the emergency use authorized product. And as soon as they do that, that triggers clauses for clinical trials that they have to do. That alters mm -hmm. the liability landscape. And there's a number of other things, which is why, even though there is a license in place for some of these age brackets, the vaccine manufacturers have steadfastly refused to produce and distribute and sell in the United States the licensed product. It's very convenient for them to continue to have a single customer, the federal government, that buys a unlicensed emergency use authorized product, markets it for them. The government does the marketing uh, and distributes it for them. I mean, what's not to like if you're a pharmaceutical company? It's all profit. But that mm -hmm. will come crashing to an end. Right. Well, I mean, it's all profit, but I think we're starting to see a lot of the data that's coming out. And it, I think it's going to be very difficult to hide the overwhelming statistics of um, kind of quote unquote sudden death. And Ed, I'd love to get your comments on this. I know you have done a lot of work around um, studying large data sets to understand what's happened over the last two years and all of these, these sudden deaths. And interestingly enough, I actually just saw something that says uh, Lisa Marie Presley just had was is in arrest. Just saw a report on that at 54 years old. Sure. Let me comment. Um, the bottom line is this. Uh, the data over uh, the last several years has had a shift from old people to younger people in terms of excess mortality. 2020 uh, was uh, older respiratory illnesses and a lot of old people died primarily unfortunately, through uh, prevention of early treatment and, uh, and protocols in hospitals that ended up killing people. Then there was a mix shift in 2021 to younger working age folks who started to have excessive uh, death. And uh, it's, it's so bad that the numbers suggest that it's been detrimental to your health to be employed in 2021 and 2022. And what, I, what do I mean by that? What I mean is a group that's normally much healthier than the, uh, the general U.S. population specifically group life policyholders. This is numbers from the Society of Actuaries. In 2021, experienced 40% excess mortality between ages 25 and 64. Um, the general U.S. population experienced 32% excess mortality, so eight points higher for this group. 
Um, there was a study in 2016, it's uh, coded in my book, uh, by the sanctuaries that showed that this is a very profitable business for them, that in fact, this group on average only dies uh, at a mortality rate of 30 to 40% that of the general U.S. population in any given year. Makes sense, they'll show up to work, they have access to the best, best health care, they tend to be younger, and uh, that's flipped in 21 and 22, and the disability data shows the same story. Uh, we've had a uh, three standard deviation year-over-year rate of change in the disability rate. We hit a new all-time high for the population and disability rate. There was 30 million disabled prior five years, bouncing between 29 and 30 million. And it shot up to 33.8 in September. And uh, of that newly added 3.2 million, 1.7 million are employed uh, or, or were employed. And uh, the, the uh, health outcomes for the employed have been detrimental in disabilities. Uh, the employed population, which is about 100 million, uh, saw a 31% increase in their disability rate, uh, and while the general U.S. population saw an 8% increase. This is between February of 21 and November of 22. So there's something going on in the country that is uh, adversely affecting uh, both uh, the, the uh, mortality and the disability rates of the employed population, more so than the general U.S. population, which has never been a relationship that's held before. So obviously, I uh, blame the vaccines. Uh, others can argue with me, but unless... Uh, someone come up with a better ex excuse or explanation. That's the simplest explanation. And uh, at the very least, it's a national security issue that I'm trying to make uh, known to the world. And I've said that to Senator Ron Johnson there in DC several weeks ago. Well, and I think, you know, what's fascinating is that at this point, you can't go to um, certain areas, whether it's, you know, at one point you couldn't go to restaurants in LA County. I think that's changed now, but there are still areas um, of the country that you're restricted from if you're not, if you're not able to show your vaccine card, but in these scenarios, like what happened with the football player that experienced cardiac arrest, uh, we're not allowed to ask whether or not these people have been vaccinated. That's become extremely taboo. Yeah, that's, that's a curious uh, uh, hypocrisy that just doesn't pass the sniff test. You know, like you said earlier, it wasn't too long ago that in the state of Hawaii, I needed to have uh, my, my vaccination status was required to eat in a restaurant, go to a gym, uh, to work at most places on Maui. And also uh, for people here on Maui to go to college, they needed to be injected. All the uh, first line responders needed to be injected. Their vaccination status needed to be known. So I find it curious that vaccination status was uh, required just to do basic living. And now uh, it's... Uh, considered you're considered a vile human being for asking the question when someone uh drops uh suddenly on the field right so dr malone uh why don't you weigh in on this these these sudden deaths and what we're seeing from a um, standpoint of how how this could be caused by the vaccine so there's two uh, working hypotheses right now, and both may explain a subset of the deaths. There's, uh, in, in, then there's, I'm talking about cardiac damage. There's also uh, other forms of sudden death, such as stroke um, or uh, pulmonary embolus, but most of these appear to be cardiac. So what's going on in the heart? There is the issue that these vaccine products, I hesitate to call them vaccine products, these products, these medical products involving the cadenic lipids, absolutely damage heart. And uh, that, that is not, uh, it can't be refuted. The, the data are clear. And uh, just a minute, I'm just uh, dealing with a, a little technical glitch. Um, so there's the damage to the heart directly from the complexes and also from the spike protein. And when heart muscle gets damaged, it doesn't heal its scars. And scars conduct electricity differently from regular healthy heart muscle. And as a consequence, you get uh, the risk of electrical abnormalities that set up something called ventricular fibrillation, where the pump part, the lower part of the heart, doesn't contract in a regular way. It just kind of squirms and wiggles like a bag of worms, it's often said, and it doesn't pump blood. And if you don't have blood pumping, of course, you uh, get lack of oxygen in your brain and, and throughout your body and you die or you certainly pass out. That's one pathway. 
Yeah, and what seems to be amazing. What we're learning, what we're learning now, uh, and this is really at the forefront right now. We just had an excellent presentation yesterday to our group of physicians. It one of the major problems that's directly caused by spike protein is the microcoagulation. There's also the large scale coagulation. These these very large rubbery clots that you hear about and occasionally see pictures of. But the real problem is the very small coagulation that occurs in the vessels, they're called arteries, right before the capillary beds where the oxygen oxygen transfer happens and CO2 transfer happens. So it's, you're getting these little tiny sludgy, hyper cross-linked fibrin clots that exist in the part of your blood system that is right before where all the gas exchange occurs. So it's blocking the inflow. It's, it's on the side of the pump pressure from your heart. And they don't go away. They stick around. And this is probably what's driving a lot of the uh, um, lack of energy that many people are finding, the exercise intolerance with long COVID, et cetera. And these microclots can also form in the heart. And so when you have the sudden formation of clots, and uh, the, the transfer of these clots down cardiac vessels that are hyper cross-linked. People in, in interventional cardiologists are reporting very odd clots that suddenly arise in people that don't have any plaque. Mm. You know, the normal cholesterol plaques that we're, we're used to that they can uh, intervene with and kind of squeeze mm. to the edge by inserting catheters. These new clots are so highly cross-linked, they can't penetrate them. They can't get rid of them. And those are really what's being driven by this spike protein, which we now know is produced at higher levels with the jab than with a natural infection, which explains why this is happening post-jab and not post-infection. So it looks like in some, a multiple uh, range of pathways one example being heart damage, that's the myocarditis that mm-hmm. is associated with significant death over a five-year time span because of this sudden death arrhythmia type problem. But we're also seeing these sudden deaths in the, uh, from microclots and very small uh, clots that are basically um, flowing down major muscles and blocking them. And they're so, uh, they're very unusual. They're so cross-linked, the fibrin, that uh, you can't use traditional interventional cardiology practices to unblock these hearts. They're, they're just kind of stuck. You can't push the catheters through them. And then there's the, like I said, strokes and other things. So I hope that helps. It does. I mean, there's a whole host of, of things that we're starting to see um, that, that are coming out in the human population, whether it's cardiac events, neurological events. Um, we're starting to see a rise in cancers. Uh, Ed, I would love to get your take. I know you did a study and produced some data on professional athletes. This is something that, that when I started digging into the data, it was stunning. Um, never before have we seen in, in history this number of professional athletes experiencing um, sudden death, whether it's from a cardiac event or, or just, again, being termed as sudden death. I mean, we're talking about people that are at peak conditioning. I think I just read there was an 18-year-old girl um, who was an up-and-coming MMA fighter, and she suddenly died. Um, You know, I I don't have the death certificates on ever these, but I find it, I I think we can say is just a general statement. The fact that we have over, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's over a thousand professional athletes in the last year and a half that have passed away. Um, There is something seriously wrong with this? Sure. So I didn't produce a study or do a study on sudden athletic death. I cited a study in my book. It's called the Los Angeles study. I think it was uh, done in 2006. It spanned 38 years and it tried to be as exhaustive as it could. It wasn't hundred percent exhaustive, but it captured 1101 sudden athletic deaths under age 35 on the field or close to the field. Um, that's about 29 per year. So that's a good baseline, uh, 29 per year. And that sounds about right globally. And that's the kind of you know, it was rare. Did it happen? Yes, it did happen. So the argument I guess, well, this has always happened. Well, sure, it's happened, but it didn't happen with the frequency that we're seeing now. And in my book, um, we, you know, uh, Gavin DeBecker uh, assisted on the book. He wrote my afterward. His team collected uh, 
hundreds and hundreds of such stories since 2021, vetted them thoroughly under ages 45. And just based on the hundreds we found, you know, it's a 10, 12 fold increase over the Lausanne study. We'd be lucky to have a month uh, with just 29 athletic deaths since 2021, uh, sudden athletic deaths on the field. Uh, the 11, the, the number you cited, I, I haven't seen that yet, but the numbers are probably very high, if not that. But in my book alone, we have hundreds and hundreds. So it's, a, it's it, the frequency which this is happening is off the charts, statistically significant. So that, that alone is a warning signal that the fittest amongst us seem to be dropping dead. And then, of course, we document in the book those who die in their sleep, celebrities that have dropped dead on stage. I mean, this is just goes, goes on and on. And then in my book, I examine what I call metadata, or the big data, the uh, actuary numbers, the uh, CDC numbers. Uh, we look at the UK. We look at uh, Denmark. We look at uh, Europe. And it's the same story. There's a mixed shift from old to young in 21 and 22. People that shouldn't be dying are dying. And it's curious that the virus has gone from a rest, mostly a respiratory issue in 2020 to a circulatory issue now, or what they want to claim through long COVID is now a circulatory issue. And I would love uh, Dr. Malone to comment on, have, has he ever seen a virus that shifted gears from one year being respiratory to circulatory the next year? I can't think of an example, frankly. <clears throat> um, and it may be in part that what's really happening is physicians are becoming more sophisticated in understanding the nature of this disease. And so rather than a change in the viral biology, what you're having is a change in physician comprehension of the nature of the disease, which is clearly a diffuse vascular disease, including both vasculitis and uh, formation of clots, coagulopathy. Got it. So basically, they misdiagnosed it in year one, but mysteriously, young people, which were not dying in, in 2020, with the introduction of vaccines, suddenly start dying. You said earlier that the spiking seems to be uh, uh, magnified by the by the vaccine itself. So that's why we didn't see young people probably dying in 2020, we're guess. Can you hear us, Robert? Sorry, uh, was on mute. Um, the documentation for that is a paper out of Stanford University in February of last year. And this is uh, the one where they did lymph node biopsies as well as uh, um, uh, blood sampling of plasma and measured both the longevity of the synthetic mRNA as well and the levels and as well as the levels of spike protein. And what they saw was that the spike protein and the mRNA persisted for at least 60 days in the vaccinated. And the levels of protein, spike protein circulating in the blood were much higher than the levels that are produced by natural infection. And they come on really fast. So Ed, if you can visualize a very sharp ascending curve after dosing, and then a gradual decline, more of an exponential decline after that, lasting for at least 60 days, very different profile from what you get with the natural infection. So it, that starts to make sense out of why we're seeing so much more damage with the jab than we're seeing with the natural infection. Did that make sense? Absolutely. And there was a, uh, what I call a, uh, an event that occurred for millennials in uh, the third quarter of 2021, the August, September, October timeframe. Uh, and it showed up in the Society of Actuaries uh, numbers. There was uh, excess mortality in this age group running around 30% in the spring. And then suddenly uh, with, with the rapid rate of change in the slope of uh, uh, excess claims, it went up to 84% for millennials into the third quarter. And, you know, the doctor of reasoning would suggest there was an event. And that event, in my mind, was, was uh, job mandates where young, he hesitant people were forced to make a decision. And we saw, like you said, given the profile curve of the, the spike in the, in the spike protein with the vaccination, we saw a pull forward of many young folks in that age group uh, excessively dying. And then it tailed off after this event, and now it's running around 23% right now as of uh, Q2 of 2022. We're going to get third quarter numbers soon. I'm told it's going to be the same, 23%. But I'm also being told that, this, that the fourth quarter, uh, so that third quarter is going to be 23%. The fourth quarter may start to rise again, which would be 
an indication of maybe medium term to longer term issues. But that's that's what I have so far. So, Ed, this is Robert. Um, what do you think the government, what do you think the White House, how are they going to respond <laughs> as these data become so clear and we have this Rasmussen blitz come out? What Are you hearing any rumors about what's happening and and uh, are they going to admit what's going on and, and how are they going to manage that once that gets revealed? Over so there? I've, you know, I hear lots of chatter and I'm given my seat on the shoe. I get lots of people giving me information. I did hear it over the weekend from someone uh, deep within the government that it is being banned about that the White House may declare an epidemic of sudden death and uh, blame long good and potentially climate change. Uh, you know, if they do that, that that's that would be hysterical in my mind. But it's being talked about because, as you just mentioned, the uh, event that occurred uh, on the NFL playing field, the Rasmussen poll and just uh, the, 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 the revelation within the body of the, of the government that this is becoming a public issue. Uh, they have to either keep covering it up or at, at least admit there's a problem. And well. And they're probably going to, uh, the information I received sounds about right to me. They're going to blame long COVID. Well, it seems to me like that would be a, a huge stretch uh, in the sense that we're, especially if you look at professional athletes. I mean, we're talking about people, again, that are at the peak health and peak performance. People that are afflicted with long COVID have, um, as Trapira Corey with the FLCCC always says, they have a constellation of symptoms. And these are people that are very sick. This is not... Um, the, the average professional athlete. So um, I'd be, I'm going to be curious to see how they frame that. Uh, as will I. Uh, as will. <laughs> I mean, certainly, I, I, I don't doubt that they will. We're, we're already starting to see, um, I think, a, a, a pretty big stretch in terms of what they're trying to tie this into. I know um, in the case of this football player, they're, they're saying that it's, it's a rare cardiac event. But uh, what I find to be astonishing is that never before have we seen the normalization like we do um, for for the younger population and even in the pediatric demographic, uh, normalization of cardiac events. We're seeing in California that that school administrators are being trained on how to recognize a car and treat cardiac events here in California. I mean, that's that's outrageous. Historically, we have not had the pediatric population um, experiencing cardiac events to the extent that schools would have to train their administrative staff to recognize and respond to these events. Um, look, in the book, I write uh, about how I, I asked I asked the reader to go back into their memory banks and either you know what if you're older when you're in junior high, high school, college, if you remembered hearing this number of sudden deaths uh, in your in, in you know either either anecdotally or nationally, uh, as we're now finding out. This, this just did not occur as frequently as it is now. That's number one. So you should use some discernment and gut to understand something's going on. Whether you believe it's the vaccine or not, it's true. This is an alarming, sudden death epidemic. Now, obviously, I blame the vaccine. I, the metadata suggests it as well, because it's affecting mostly the employed of the country. Um, with long COVID, I find curious, and unless they've come up with a clinical definition, Dr. Malone, how, how long does it take to come up with a clinical definition of something? And why, why do you think we don't have a clinical definition of what long COVID is yet? Um, it, it's a function of the uh, medical group and how pressing and how um, clearly defined that condition is. So there's no timetable. Uh, long COVID, we looked into this in detail at DOD at uh, MIT Lincoln Labs. Um, we built a internal report about it. Long COVID is a very complex cluster of diseases. It's not really one thing. We can use that name, but you know, at the base level, what you have is this blood clotting problem, which can affect virtually any organ of the body. And then you have all these other syndromic things. And on top of them, you have activation of DNA viruses, latent DNA viruses like Epstein-Barr virus. And so this term long COVID is really a gross oversimplification of a very large cluster of different diseases. 
And that's why it can't really be tie-on because it's not any one thing and it affects virtually any part of the body. It's a multi-organ system uh, problem. You know, in the past, we've examples of this are AIDS and tuberculosis, uh, where you have something that can affect virtually any part of the body. And obviously, then we have the, the politics of this. The government decided uh, in its wisdom quite a while ago to allocate, I forget what the sum, about $50 million, which is a, a drop in the bucket for long COVID research. It was kind of a Band-Aid put on top of it. So there hasn't been a commitment to really approaching it in a, in a rigorous way. And as you recall, Ed, and I certainly recall because I had it, uh, beginning after my infection in February of 2020. For the longest time, there was denialism that long COVID was even a, a problem or a syndrome. Over? Yeah, I remember that as well. So it is, well, it, it is a thing. It's, it, it's something. It's, it's, an, it's, a, it's, an over, it, it's hard to pin down, but it certainly, was it appearing in the young as much as uh, and causing death prior to vaccines? It didn't show up in the numbers, according to my stats. Yeah, and the problem, of course, is that the epidemiology and tracing on that wasn't done, so we don't have the data. Interesting. So there's a couple of questions that, that seem to be coming in I'd like to ask both of you. Um, this one, particularly, Dr. Malone. Um, Dr. Saeed Hader says, um, it looks like all Vax injured have the microclots, but is there any data on what percentage of all Vax patients have the atypical fibrin microclot? <laughs> um, all vaccinated. So the only way we could do that is if everybody after uh, they got jabbed would get a blood draw, which probably is a good idea because you ought to be checking for cardiac enzymes and pretty much anybody that gets the jab. But uh, he's asking for data that I, I just don't see how it could be obtained because mm -hmm. it's not routine practice to get any kind of a blood sample or biopsy that would allow you to make that conclusion. That's my uh, assessment. Well, and by the way, just as a tangent, you mentioned early on, Lisa mm -hmm. Marie Presley has been hospitalized after a determination of cardiac arrest, mm -hmm. and there's no mention about her vaccination status, so let's just not go there. Let's give them a little bit of, of oxygen. But one of the uh, uh, top trending uh, um, items on Twitter right now is died suddenly, as well as Lisa Marie Presley. So. We, you know, this is absolutely a key to we're, we're hitting on here. Well, I mean, I, I, we, we get at the Unity Project, we get data coming in and it's um, tragic on a daily basis. We see people that are under the age of 55, uh, oftentimes under the age of 30 on a daily basis. We're getting reports of people that are dying suddenly or are experiencing some type of cardiac relief. Um, event that's very significant. And going back to what you were saying with regard to um, the data and how it might be difficult to obtain, correct me if I'm wrong, but when someone's is away, oftentimes um, autopsies, deep autopsies are not being performed that would allow us to, to get a, a true understanding of time's cause of death um, in certain cases. So Laura, to be perfectly honest, uh, rigorous autopsies have become rare. Mm -hmm. They're not cheap. Uh, they're often not computed. And on top of that, so that's the baseline, is uh, the role of the pathologist as a quality of function in the hospital disease. There's no incentive for doing that. Mm -hmm. The pathology report creates legal risks. Nobody wants a, really wants to know what happened. Uh, they want to have whatever's in the book in their patient record accepted. They certainly don't want anything to challenge it. It's expensive. Uh, there aren't that many pathologists. It's just not getting done in the way it once was that was, you know, historically the back of quality control in the hospitals. Mm -hmm. On top of that, uh, autopsies for this disease syndrome were specifically um, uh, discouraged uh, by the NIH and others early on. And pathologists were scared. Uh, remember all the all the fear that was surrounding us. Mm -hmm. It's akin in the early days. You would be it would be akin to asking a pathologist to do an autopsy on an Ebola patient. Right. Uh, that's the way it was positioned. So sure. I recall in the early days, in the first quarter, uh, the only pathologic specimens we could get 
was a very small SAMSCAN slides that came from the H. They were very poor paired. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's part of what made it so hard at the outset to make sense out of what was going on. Uh, so uh, a lot of factors going into that. And I think we have to own the fact that in general, in modern American medical practice and European practice, the uh, emphasis and importance of the autopsy has really been um, reduced for a variety of reasons. And so it's not just a, it's, we, we need to avoid thinking it's a conspiracy. It's just kind of been a failure of the medical system now for quite a long time. Over. Right. Well, and that, my, my point in asking that or bringing that uh, question up would be that it somewhat limits our ability to truly go in and, and understand. Who, oh, complete, more than some. And, and, yeah. and it's actually working in the favor, in this case, of the pharmaceutical industry in terms of being able to continue to suppress and, um, and, and make this somewhat opaque, uh, the cause of death and, and correlate it to the vaccines. Um, there was someone who asked a question about whether or not, and I think I know the answer, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask it anyway, whether or not, um, Ed, we've been able to get access to when people have died or entering the hospitals, how many vaccines they've had. And, I, and again, I think I know the answer, but I'll let I'll, I'll defer to, to either Dr. Malone or Ed on this. I'll start. Uh, the insurance companies would like to know that. They don't have that data. I don't have that data. Um, there is a movement afoot, insurance industry, uh, quietly to think about suing the government for such information because currently they don't, it's not available to them. So a coalition may form. They believe they should have it. And right now they don't. So if the insurance companies don't have it, I certainly don't have it. Functionally, in the hospital environment, there are disincentives to uh, admitting that one is not vaccinated. You remember there were policies and advocacies that uh, unvaccinated should not even be allowed in the hospital. They should be allowed to die. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, this was part of, of the kind of um, tribalism that kicked in. So uh, there's, I don't think there's going to be any way to ever get that data. They, it was not adequately captured in part by intention uh, through the outbreak. And so whatever data we have on that, we know is going to be influenced by a variety of biases, reporting biases, and it's basically going to be junk. We're going to have to look for those data in places like uh, the Scandinavian countries where they have good medical systems and, and less intrinsic bias of physician reporting. Over. So I have invited um, someone to ask a question. Uh, his, his son has died. Um, after taking the Pfizer vaccine, and he has a question that he would like to ask. I'm not sure um, if you've been able to jump on. Okay, we'll give him some more time to jump on. Uh, but, you know, going into this, the, the other thing that, that's always fascinating to me, and we're spending a lot of time right now talking about, um, you know, it's suddenly and professional athletes, which I think obviously is top of mind given that this seems to be a constant occurrence in the daily news feeds. But, you know, there are large cohorts of um, the demographic in this in the world that have not really been studied and we're starting to see the impact. Obviously, the pediatric population is one that I think was not really studied. Um, and also the reproductive uh, population. And I don't know, Ed or or uh, Dr. Malone, if either one of you have any, any data on how it's impacting these particular um, parts of the population. So my myself and my team have been asked to look at uh, uh, birth rates a- across the globe, and we've stayed away from it because we can't get good data on it yet. Uh, if we could, we would talk about it, but uh, we have avoided going down that path just because we don't have the data that we, we need. Okay. Dr. Malone, do you have and, any? Yeah, we did have to moan. Uh, from uh, obstetricians uh, with Senator Johnson's most recent hearings. And they were reporting anecdotally uh, stunning increases in first and second trimester spontaneous abortions, as well as their perception being that there was a spike in birth defects associated with the inoculation. So um, like the cancer situation, 
often the frontline docks are canaries in the coal mine. They detect, they think they're detecting events. Um, it, you know, they're always, all of us are subject to bias in the context and all the politics going on here. But when, when frontline docs or pathologists or oncologists start saying things like we're seeing unusual cancers, um, historically we wouldn't see this, mm-hmm. uh, or obstetricians are saying, hey, it, it just seems we're seeing way, way too many first and second trimester abortions. And, uh, and I'm you know, seeing these abortions and seeing, uh, various types of birth defects at a rate that I've never seen before in my practice. The usual response to that would be that our public health uh, service would then kick in and start to do rigorous uh, analyses. But it seems that the CDC has become so politicized that they are completely incapable of doing their core mission, which is uh, surveillance and detection and analysis of these kinds of public health signals. Over. Well, can I com- can ahead. I comment? Uh, you know, look, I'm on Wall Street, and a lot of times I was looking for trends and, and signals and anecdotes and changes in something that you're seeing with your own eyes was an, always an early indicator for me. And Dr. Ryan Cole, early on in 2021, started seeing a, a huge explosion of cancers in his practice. And this is what, you know, these doctors seeing this, you know, anecdotes lead to new trends and and, and what Dr. Malone said, this, the, the health authority should be taking these signals and doing rigorous studies. The only reason I haven't looked at the birth uh, issue and the, 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 uh, the spontaneous abortion issue is the data, but the signal seems to be there. And if I was a betting man, if I could get good data, uh, we'd see horrendous uh, results, is my opinion. Well, one thing is for certain, it, it never ceases to amaze me that um, we have... A, a, a vaccine for something that is, especially in people under the age of 60 that are, that are healthy, uh, that is, is extremely low risk. Uh, these vaccines are still experimental and they do not prevent the, the acquisition or transmission of the virus. Yet we continue to um, not only in some cases force them on the human population, but um, we, we continue to, to propagate this. I mean, I saw an a commercial on Sesame where Elmo was promoting these vaccines. So, um, it, it continues to astonish me. Let me see. We do have one person that, that did want to ask a question. So I'm, I'm going to try to see if I can, uh, ask, I apologize. Okay. Let me see if I can work on this. Um, before we wrap up, Dr. Malone, is there anything else that, that you want to talk about uh, with, with Ed and the data of all these sudden deaths that we're starting to see? No, I, I think Ed and, and I have now been talking about that for a couple <laughs> hours today because uh, we did it before on the Bannon show. Uh, you know, I, I, Ed, Ed has, just to, to give acknowledgement and credit where credit's due, Ed is, is the one that first identified the, um, the meaning, the intrinsic meaning of this emerging data that some journalists had identified in the actuarial tables and in the reporting from the insurance company. And he realized that this had huge implications in terms of potential profitability for these companies and uh, and the potential conflict between the pharmaceutical industry, one massive financial block, and the insurance industry. And just as a shout out, Ed and his partners have just been uh, doggedly pursuing this, trying to alert uh, the, the street and uh these uh, companies about the, the implications of data. And uh, he's been pushing at it for, it's at least nine months now. And uh, he's, it's, it's, you know, he's been uh, um, relentless and persistent, tireless in doing this. And, right. and I think we owe him uh, just a huge thank you for 
his willingness to sacrifice time. He's not being constant. He's not being compensated for this. Uh, putting in the time and effort to try to pursue this, run these data down to ground, and try to wake up the entire world about the implications. So that's all I have to say about Ed. Right now, is he's, <laughs> well, a, he's absolutely a hero for what he's done. And I well, I think I think every everyone in this movement, at risk of their um, professional, what you guys have done professionally up to this point, um, putting that all aside and um, speaking about what's truly happening and peeling back the layers of what the government and the pharmaceutical companies and the media has all really collaborated together to to force on the on the human population. I think you guys are all outstanding for doing that. And I know Ed, you have a website where you've put a lot of the, this data that is very powerful. Um, it's called the Humanity Project. Is that correct? Did we lose you, Ed? Can you hear me? Yep, there you are. Um, it's yeah, it's called the Humanity Humanity Projects, and it can be found at financetechnologies.com. It's spelled P-H-I-N-A-N-C-E technologies.com. Uh, it literally we've uh, done excess mortality studies on Europe, the UK, Germany, Ireland. Uh, Australia, the U.S., and we're going to be doing Canada soon. The story is pretty much the same across the board, a mixed shift in excess mortality from old to young, uh, and different different countries, depending upon when they started their vaccinations, have different, slightly different stories, but it's all the same. Excess mortality seems to be up and to the right field. It's tragic. Uh, before we close out, Dan, are you able to uh, unmute yourself and ask a question? Hi, thank you very much for the opportunity. My son, Sean, played hockey his whole life. And to continue to play hockey, he had to be vaccinated. So he took one shot of Pfizer. He went to emergency four days later with a severe rash on his face and brown circles around his eyes. He was vomiting. The doctor didn't do a D-dimer test. He didn't do a troponin test. He sent him home with Advil. I filed a complaint against this doctor with the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Ontario, Canada, and he was found not guilty. Mm -hmm. 33 days after my son's first Pfizer shot, he was found dead on the floor beside his bed in the morning of September 27th, 2021. Oh, they did an autopsy, and the cause of death is unascertained. It was a full autopsy with toxicology and genetic testing, and the cause is unascertained. They can't tell me why he died. So I wanted to ask Dr. Malone, isn't unascertained very rare for autopsies? And what am I supposed to believe? Do I, do I believe that they really don't know why he died or they're covering it up? Because in my mind, in my soul, in my heart, the vaccine killed my son. Dan, I'm terribly sorry. Did we, did we speak about this uh, at that happened? Has that happened? I remember getting a call that sounds very similar to this. Did we speak I've never, personally at that time? Okay, you've never no, I've it's never spoke to. I mean, it's a different case, which just underscores how shocking these things are. Um, what what is being observed is that because of these highly cross-linked, small fibrin microclots that are launching into various places in brain and skin and heart, it's it's not that sh show the signs that a pathologist would typically look for. For instance, I'm sure your son didn't have um, uh, large amounts of cholesterol plaque in the arteries of his heart. And so no. these little microclots are just, they're not easy to find. They can't really readily do it. The big, large ones they can easily find. The little tiny ones that can kill you, especially when they get in the wrong place, like in your heart, um, those are in the vessels uh, feeding your brain. Those can be really hard for them to find because they're not typical. So I don't want to say that there, I, I have no way of knowing uh, whether there was pressure on the pathologist to not report anything that could be interpreted as vaccine relief. I, you know, it's certainly a reasonable hypothesis, but it's also quite reasonable that the pathologist did a perfectly adequate or even um, above, above normal, uh, um, standards uh, autopsy and still didn't come up with a cause of death, which I agree is an unusual finding. It would, it, you know, if I was uh, um, 
a uh, resident in pathology and I did an autopsy and uh, brought my supervisors a report that said, oh, I'm sorry, I couldn't figure it out. Uh, that, that would not be uh, looked on favorably. Uh, you're supposed to do this until you figure it out and you're supposed to take into account whatever the findings were clinically uh, before death, et cetera. So I, I, uh, I, I doubt that um, this was intentional. I hope it's not intentional to uh, skew results. And it is consistent with what we now know about the disease that one could have an unusual, very unusual absence of physical findings. Uh, this is being reported again and again that, that folks are dying and no one can find the cause. This is, this is actually, uh, you know, this cause unknown, uh, the title of Ed's book, I think. Mm -hmm. It actually is happening because uh, what is causing these deaths involves pathways and processes that we've never encountered before in medicine, which again underscores that this is not a consequence of climate change or natural process. This is something that's been introduced into the population, some new variable. And the only new variable that any of us can think about, can imagine, um, is is these jabs because they do seem to correlate as, and particularly um, curious is Ed's observation well documented with his team that there's this relationship in time with the onset of uh, administration of the products, particularly the mandated administration to the well-employed uh, population that has access to this type of insurance. You know, the, the, the folks that live down the canyon here that drive the school bus and uh, um, help take care of our house they don't have access to uh, life insurance policies. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, it's it's the it's not just the employed; it's the employed uh, that are younger, professional, in high-paying jobs that have access to this, and those are the ones that were subjected to mandates. And the timing corresponds. So we're we're in a situation where it walks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, it looks like a duck, but we're not allowed to call it a duck. Over. Right. Dan, I'm, I'm, my heart goes out to you and your family. I cannot imagine, I believe, that the loss of a child is probably one of the worst things that a human being can possibly experience. And I say that as a parent, um, I have no words of comfort or wisdom other than to say, keep, um, keep fighting. And, um, and Dr. Malone and Ed, I'm incredibly grateful for your time this evening. I'm incredibly grateful for everyone that joined um, it's, it's this type of coming together where we're going to continue to bring awareness and affect change and stop what's happening, um, in this country and really around, around the globe. This has been an awful, um, crime in my opinion, that's been perpetrated against the human population. So, um, everyone on the call, please continue to fight. And, um, Ed, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Malone. I'm excited to continue our series next week. I think we're going to do it at, uh, four o'clock Western. I'm, um, seven o'clock Eastern time, but uh, everyone stay tuned for the next event that's happening next Thursday. Have a great evening, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks. Ed. Thanks, Dr. Malone. Well done. Bye-bye, all. Bye-bye.